topics. And just the city of Jerusalem, all right? So what, what, what does the Bible say about Jerusalem, the city of God? So here I have a picture of Jerusalem, an aerial view. Uh, I think this would be from uh, the western side um, of Jerusalem. Uh, we'll talk more about the topography of Jerusalem in just a minute. Um, but the question I'm asking right now is, why is there so much tension between Israelis and Muslims in Jerusalem? Like, why, why, why do both groups of people care about Jerusalem? And as we consider Jerusalem, uh, this would be an artist's rendering of Jerusalem um, back in first century uh, A.D. When we consider the city of Jerusalem, it is significant religiously for Muslims and uh, Israelis and Christians. I was interested to read this past week uh, that they were tearing down Christmas decorations in Bethlehem. I thought, well, that's appropriate. <laughs> Whether it was done for bad reasons or not. Uh, there are Christmas trees outside there. Um, as I stand in front of a Christmas tree, it's kind of funny. Um, so, so why do, do the Muslims think Jerusalem is such an important city? Well, at one time, early on in, in Muhammad's spiritual journey, the most important place to pray to was Jerusalem, right? And that was because early on in his prophetic wanderings, uh, he had a, a midnight trip to Jerusalem that he was carried there on this horse of sorts. Uh, there were two angelic being, beings that appeared to him, and he went to Jerusalem, and then he went up into heaven and talked to some of the prophets and came back down. And, and so Jerusalem was the place to pray, pray to. But later on, I think as things progressed for Muhammad, Medina became the, I mean, I'm sorry, Mecca became the primary place to pray towards. And then Medina was important. And so Jerusalem is the third most important holy city for Muslims, right? And we understand that for Jews, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is the most important city, right? It is, is the place of the temple, there's still the, the wailing wall, the western wall of, 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 the, of the city, of the Temple Mount there, um, that goes way, way back in history. Uh, very interesting place to visit. And so as we consider Jerusalem and its significance for Muslims, Jews, and Christians, right? we'll talk about why it's significant for us at the end, um, I wanted to look at Jerusalem throughout the scriptures. Now, as we look at Jerusalem, we need to understand a figure of speech. I don't want to get too complex. Metonymy is very easy to understand, though. It's a figure of speech consisting of the use of a name of one thing for that of another, which is an attribute or which is, uh, or with which it is associated. So, uh, for instance, I could say uh, the White House said, right? When I say the White House said, I'm talking about, you know, President Biden, his cabinet, you know, everything that falls underneath it, right? So if I'm talking about Jerusalem, I could be speaking of its inhabitants, you know, or I could be talking about even the nation of Israel, right? When Jesus talks about Jerusalem, he says, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, right? He's really talking about the nation of people, the entire nation, not just the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it can be the physical city itself, Jerusalem, it can be its inhabitants, or uh, in the Bible, even uh, all of the people that constitute Israel, so as we look at Jerusalem throughout the scriptures, I'm coming from a particular interpretive background, an interpretive understanding. A hermeneutic is the fancy word. How do you interpret the Bible? And in my understanding of the Bible, there is a distinct difference between 
Israel and the church. Now, there's, there are other hermeneutic or interpretive uh, frameworks that say basically there's only one people of God, and I would in a sense agree with that to an extent, but that Israel, the bottom line is that, that uh, Israel uh, has been replaced by the church. Uh, the, the church is the new Israel. And so all the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are now being are now coming to pass, have come to pass in Christ, or and are coming to pass in the church. And so the promises that are made in different prophetic books uh, that weren't fulfilled are being fulfilled in the church, right? And so the hermeneutic that I'm coming from is a literal hermeneutic that says, no, those promises that were made to Israel are going to be fulfilled to Israel in the future, in, in the kingdom. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute, because I believe that God has a future for ethnic Israel. So when I talk about Israel, right now, I'm not talking about the state that exists with Netanyahu. Netanyahu is the president. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the landmass that exists as Israel. I'm talking about ethnic Israel, all those people that derive from Abraham ethnically. Okay, and it will eventuate in land for people in the future. Okay, but when I'm talking right now, I'm talking about ethnic Israel uh, in this discussion. So, let's look at a few brief uh, text, uh, briefly survey some text in the scripture. It's not going to be so brief. We're going to go really fast right now. This is where you have to either have to drink more coffee or sit up straight because we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture because I'm trying to give you an overview of what the Bible says about Jerusalem. So, Jerusalem was chosen by God along with King David, right? God had a purpose and a plan for King David in the line of the Messiah. The book of Ruth leads us into that. From Samuel to, to Ruth, that there was a plan through David. And David chose, according to God's providence, he chose Jerusalem as his home. And later on, he would choose it as the home of the tabernacle, and then, and then the temple would be there, okay? So 2 Samuel 5, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and in Judah 33 years. The king, his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. It was an originally, Jerusalem was originally inhabited by the Jebusites. And for whatever reason, Joshua and the men of, of, of Israel couldn't oust the, 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 the Jebusites. And so when David wanted Jerusalem, he had to kick the Jebusites out. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off, they thought. David cannot get in here. What do we read later? Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. The city of David is another name for Jerusalem. He went in through the, the water lines. The, the, there's water underneath the city there. There are wells that have been dug, cisterns, and he just entered through that for that method. So David conquered Jerusalem and it became uh, the capital of Israel. Uh, and God chose um, Jerusalem to be uh, the city of David, the city of his uh, people. So prayers for the peace of Jerusalem, right? We read about this in Psalm 122, were consistent with covenantal promises. Now, you'll see this on bumper stickers sometimes now. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Okay, well, I want to pray for the peace of Hamtramck as well. I could put a bumper sticker on there. Pray for the peace of Washington, D.C. Pray for the peace of Gaza. Okay, whatever. 
Um, this is in a context. This is given to a people in a particular time, partic- particular purpose, right? David, as he wrote this psalm, this is where he lives. This is where all his people are. Right? This is the center of the nation. Like, I want to pray for the peace of 3890 Prescott. Right? And so um, David asks for prayer here for, the, for Jerusalem. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Right. So there is a further prayer because of the presence of God Okay, uh, in that city associated with the tabernacle. Though blessed by the loving presence of the Lord, I'm sorry, God chose, I'm skip down, God chose Israel as his dwelling place for his presence, right? So we know the history of um, David and his son Solomon. Uh, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God wouldn't let him do that because he had blood on his hands. And so he said, but your son's going to do it, right? So before David died, he made all these preparations for the temple to be built, right? In 1 Kings chapter 8, we read about that moment when the temple was dedicated, when the Shekinah glory of God entered into the temple. And when we talk about the Shekinah glory of God, God entering the temple, it is a special manifestation of his presence in the temple area. Right? Solomon would say, no house can contain you, right? They're not containing God, but his presence is specially manifested there. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem all the elders, all the heads of the tribes and chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion the city of David. All right, so the city of David was actually located at the time in a, a place that's a little bit lower. They brought it up to where the temple was built. It's still what we would call Jerusalem today, but at that time it was a little bit different. Though blessed by the love, loving presence of the Lord, Israel rejected God's love in favor of foreign gods. So when we read about Solomon, Solomon made some poor choices, too many wives, they had gods, his heart was drawn away. And that was God's indictment against Solomon. Well, as goes as goes the king, as the king goes, so the people go. Um, and so we see throughout the historical books, First Kings, Second Kings, Chronicles, uh, that the kings went after uh, foreign gods, incurring God's judgment. But God was not going to give up on His people. We were here, but for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. And so God tore the kingdom into. Under Solomon's reign, God said, look, your kingdom's going to be torn into. There's going to be two kingdoms. And the way it worked out, there were, was the northern kingdom, ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, two tribes. And the southern kingdom, the place where there are two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, Judah is where Jerusalem is located. And so we read later, I will give one tribe to his son, So that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put 
my name. So the kingdom is torn in two, two tribes. The northern kingdom is completely apostate under Jeroboam. He creates two golden calves, Dan, puts them in Dan and Bethel. He does that so that the people in the northern kingdom won't go down to Jerusalem to worship because if they go down to Jerusalem to worship because the, the, the temple's there, then their hearts are going to be drawn away from him as the king and they want to kill him. So he set up a form of worship in the northern kingdom. The kings of Judah weren't much better, though. There were some good kings, uh, but they weren't much better. The kings of Judah rejected God, bringing judgment upon Jerusalem. And the devolution of the kings really is epitomized by Manasseh, who built a temple to an idol of a false god and put it in the temple area, sacrificing babies uh, in, in the valley just below Jerusalem. Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. He continues, I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of the enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all of their enemies. And so they, they forsook God. They went after false gods. The kings did that. The people did that. The people of Judah followed the kings, and they rejected God, bringing judgment upon Jerusalem. And we read about that as well, right, in Second Chronicles. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word through them, through the, his messengers, uh, to them, his, uh, to them would be the people, through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, Jerusalem. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. It's interesting, God's final prophet is is who? Jesus Christ. The Jews completely mocked Jesus Christ. So, So what is in store for Jerusalem? We continue in verse 17. He, God, brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. It sounds like what happened uh, in southern Israel outside Gaza, doesn't it? Horrific. God gave them all into his hands, the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried uh, to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Jeremiah testifies to this same thing. On the tenth day of the fifth month, in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard, who served the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, all his houses. Jerusalem, every important building was burned down. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against his prophets. God judged them. 
He destroyed Jerusalem. He took them into captivity. Now, this happens in 586 B.C. Again, I told you the last time we talked about this, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria. Not all of them were taken, because what they did, they had a program where they would bring people from Assyria, bring them down into to Israel, the northern Israel, and they would have them intermarry, right? And that's how you get the Samarians, the hated people. But in 586, this is when uh, God's people were taken into captivity. The remnant was taken into captivity, and Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple was completely destroyed. Although God had judged Jerusalem and promised further judgment, the people falsely believed themselves to be secure. So this is interesting, uh, because when the people are taken into captivity, they're taken in three waves, okay? And so I think Daniel went in the first wave, probably Ezekiel went in the first wave as well. And so there are still people, Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem though, and people are saying, no, we're safe, we're secure, everything's going to be okay. The one I just read about was the final destruction, you know, after the third wave of captives uh, was taken. But the people thought themselves to be secure. I am against you, Jerusalem, you who live above this valley on this rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? I will punish you as your deeds deserve, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in your forests that will consume everything around you. If you read Jeremiah, you understand it. The false prophets kept saying, peace, 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 there's peace, there's peace. And Jeremiah was like, no, we're going down. You're going down, just go into captivity and everything will be okay. Jeremiah, you're lying. You're going to be, you know, they threw him to a pit, you know, a cistern. And, and it's like, peace, peace, nobody can, nobody can hurt us. We're good. As they continue to rebel against God. But though God... Destroyed Jerusalem and carried his people to captivity, he promised to rebuild and recover the remnant. Right? When you read Isaiah, Isaiah is written before Jeremiah. And Isaiah is an interesting book. You know, Isaiah writes about, you know, this is why it's basically like you're a court scene, you know, you're guilty of this, you're gonna be punished, you're gonna be punished by these nations. But guess what? God is gonna punish the nations that punish you, but don't give up hope. There is hope, the Messiah is coming. And there's glimpses of the kingdom and the coming Messiah throughout Isaiah. And throughout he's promising that he's going to bring his people back from captivity. And he did so in an amazing way through King Cyrus. Right? Read this in Isaiah 44. This to me is amazing. Uh, who says of Cyrus, God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple let its foundations be laid. If you read the end of Second Chronicles, basically this is what happens. Basically the same thing is repeated. Cyrus is going to rebuild the temple. You start in Ezra, guess what? The temple's, got, the, the temple's going to get rebuilt. Nehemiah, the, the wall's going to get rebuilt. So in Ezra we read this. Ezra 1, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. All right, so God told the people, even in the time of Moses, if you disobey my commands, if you rebel against me, these things are going to happen to you, and you're going to go into captivity. Sure enough, they did that. Hundreds of years later, they did, they did that, and what happened? 
they went into captivity. But God promised to the prophets, when you go into captivity, I'm going to bring you back. What did he do? He brought them back. And he made a plan to rebuild uh, Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. It's interesting when you uh, look at Ezekiel and see what happens before the temple is destroyed. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of God departs the temple. And did you know when the temple is rebuilt by the, the, the captives that came back, the exiles, we never read about the glory of God returning to the temple. I find that, I find that interesting. Uh, we never read about that. Though Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt, the people remained in rebellion, even rejecting God's Messiah. So they go into captivity because they've rebelled. They come back and they don't stop rebelling against God. They may not fall prey to the same idolatry that they were prone to prior to captivity. They kind of got that message, okay? Um, But they were still in rebellion against God. And so so God says, you know what? You've rejected me. You continue to reject me, okay? But I'm not finished with you. Though Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt, um, uh, uh, the people remained in rebellion, and Jesus recognizes this, right? At the end of his ministry, just the, you know, prior to being crucified, you know, the week before he was crucified, after he comes into Jerusalem, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as the hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Now that phrase, your house is left to you desolate, is important. Because in Zechariah, when Zechariah talks about the coming kingdom and the Messiah coming, he starts talking about the house again. We're going to see that in just a second. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? So this is after Jesus walks into Jerusalem and they're saying, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus, after that, makes this and he's quoting from, makes a statement. He quotes from Psalm 118. And he's looking to a time future when the people would bless him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who's he referring to? He's not referring to the city, although it does involve the city. He's talking about the people. He's talking about the people. He's talking about ethnic Israel. God, however, is not finished with Israel or the city of Jerusalem. As we look at the prophets, and again, this is where my hermeneutic comes into play, that there is a distinct difference between the church and Israel, and that the promises that God made to Israel that were unfulfilled aren't being fulfilled in the church. They're going to be fulfilled yet in the future to the nation of Israel. So in Zechariah chapter 12, we read this. Again, the point is, is that God is not finished with Israel. He's not finished with Jerusalem. Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and its inhabitants, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, what a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. He continues. And I will pour out on the house of David 
Oh, that's the same, the same verse. Oh, sorry. All right, so the point here, let me back up a little bit. I have two verses in a row there that messed me up a little bit. Let me go back and make sure. I don't want you guys to get lost here. There we go. Okay, so the point is, is in Zechariah, and we're going to go back to Zechariah in a minute, is Zechariah is saying, look, there's coming a time where the Messiah will appear to the people, and they will look on him. Ethnic Israel will look on the one that they have pierced. But at that time when they look on him, okay, a spirit of grace will be poured out upon him. So remember that, because we're going to see that again in a minute. In Romans, okay, Paul talks about that. We talked about this last, last time we looked at this. Paul talks about the fact that God isn't finished with Israel. We see this throughout the Old Testament prophets, and Paul is echoing this, okay? And again, in, Hebrews, in Romans chapter 11, it's clear that Paul is making a distinction between Israel and the church. Because he's, he's looking at two different groups here in this discussion. So Paul writes, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Did God not reject his people whom he foreknew? I'm sorry, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And he, and he, I won't go there. Okay, but the point here is this. Paul's saying, look, I'm, living, I'm a living testimony to the fact that God hasn't completely forsaken Israel. Jesus says, your house has left you des- desolate. And Paul says, look, I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. God is still working in his people. God still has a plan for ethnic Israel, and because of that, he has a plan for Jerusalem. Well, Romans 11 continues. What then? What the people of Israel saw earnestly, they did not obtain. So there were, there's nobody from Israel who is going to embrace the Messiah. But for the most part, they were hardened. He says, the elect among them did embrace the Messiah. Paul was one of those, but the others were hardened. He continues in Romans chapter 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. See, he's just talking about two different groups here. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Right. So the, the picture here is, you may have read Romans 11, is the olive tree, and there's a wild shoot grafted into the olive tree. The olive tree is Israel. The wild shoot is grafted into the olive tree. The Gentiles, okay? And so Gentiles, be careful. Don't mock the Jews. Don't look down on Jews because you're grafted into what they've been given. They're the people from whom the Messiah has come. He continues. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come again. Come in. So there's these two different groups here. Israel, Gentiles. Israel has had this hardening, this, this partial hardening, hardening that all of them, right? Because Paul is a Christian now. Jews came to faith on the day of Pentecost. And ultimately, in this way, all Israel, all who are truly Israel, will be saved. So God isn't finished with his people, the Jews, the Israelites, if you want to call them ethnic Israel, okay, He does have a plan for them. And Paul says, right now, at this time, that's the time that we're in, 
there is this parenthesis, there is this kind of time out for Israel as a whole, while God is dealing with the Gentiles, this branch that he's grafted in. But there's coming a time in the future where God is going to say, okay, now it's time to deal with you, Israel, again. I don't have time to go into all this. But if you look at Daniel's prophecy, at the end of Daniel, there's 69 weeks talked about. There is a 70th week, which would be a period of seven years, where God is going to jump back in and start dealing with Israel again. It's not time to, to, to go through all that. Uh, it's interesting to read, though. As we continue here, God's prophets, who promise destruction and captivity, also promise a future kingdom with Jerusalem as its focal point. All right, So Paul says, look, there's this you know, time where God has he's kind of put ethnic Israel aside. But remember, the prophets say, you know, God is going to start working with them again. And again, back to Zechariah, we see this. This is where it gets interesting to me. So open up your Bibles to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 is a fascinating passage in the Bible. If you were going to correlate Zechariah to a book of the Bible in the New Testament, I would say Revelation, around Revelation 19. If you follow a, a literal hermeneutic. Again, I've said this before. We're going to see this in rapid fire succession now. There's this expression, a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord at that time, at that day. It's talking about a time in the future. The end times. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered, divided up within your very walls. Okay, it's coming in the future. Uh, you know, someone say, okay, that's 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 uh, that's eighty seventy. Okay, I don't have time to go there, but let's jump forward. Um, let's continue to read here. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. All the nations, not just one, not just Rome, but all the nations. To Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile. But the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations. Revelation 19. As he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split into two. From east into west. Forming a great valley with half the mount moving north. And half of the mount moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. Again, Revelation chapter 19. This is a fascinating picture, right? As you consider uh, Jerusalem, right? So this would be an aerial view of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is where the Temple One existed, once existed. Right now, the Temple Mount, there's the Dome of the Rock, okay? And there is Al-Aqsa, the mosque. And for the Muslim, they look at the whole area as the Al-Aqsa mosque, okay? But these two Muslim uh, edifices are there, right? So you're looking, this would be like a drone shot. Oh, you're over, this is interesting to me, you're over the Mount of Olives. This is a drone shot looking down, okay? And, and to me, right, in the angels in, uh, in Acts chapter 1, you know, he's gone up in the sky, you're looking at there, he's going to come down just like he said he was, just like he said he would, he's going to return, in Acts chapter 1. So, Zechariah 14 says, Jesus is going to come down and his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. This is the Mount of Olives. 
looking towards the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. It goes down into the Kidron Valley. It's a very steep descent down into the valley, then back up to the Temple Mount. So as you're standing up on uh, the Mount of Olives and you look straight across, this is what you see. You see the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. And you see the Dome of the Rock there clearly. On the eastern wall there, there is the eastern gate. Now as you consider the, the, the archaeological finds there in Jerusalem, you have to understand at one time this place was just covered with dirt, right? They had to dig all this stuff up. They had to excavate it. And um, when they built the Dome of the Rock, right, they were trying to figure out, okay, where can we put the Dome of the Rock is in the most sacred spot, you know, thinking it was the place where the temple was. Well, they, they missed the mark, okay? And as you look at the temple wall, the wall around the temple, the temple, the temple mount, the, yeah, the, the wall going around the temple mount, the eastern gate, if you're to walk through the eastern gate and it's closed, right, you can see how there's, there's rock in front of it. As you walk through the eastern gate, you would be looking straight at the temple. And I find that fascinating because, see, the, the big red circle there would be the eastern gate, so if you walk straight through the eastern gate, you would be looking straight at the temple, Solomon's temple. Okay, but it's not there, obviously. So the Dome of the Rock is a little bit off-center there. When I, when I visited Jerusalem, this is a very fascinating moment for me. I visited Jerusalem, and that red box there would be basically almost where the Holy of Holies would have been if you were to put a temple there. I remember that moment when the, the tour guide takes us there and says, this is, this is the spot. I'm like, oh, this is incredible, right? It's an amazing thought. And so Jesus Christ, according to Zechariah, is going to touch down the Mount of Olives. It's going to split. Water's going to go from, from uh, the Dead Sea all the way to the Mediterranean. That's what the scriptures say. And then God is going to set up the temple of the Lord, right? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest mountains. It will be established above the hills, and peoples will stream into it. Many nations will say, come, to, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those who have brought... Those I have brought to grief, I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, uh, those driven away a strong nation. Again, two things. One, in that day, that is, that is the key phrase, looking to the future. And then he says, those, that were, who, those who are in uh, exile and captivity, I'm going to bring them back. They will be a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion. I would correlate this with... with uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, what God promises in Ezekiel, I will set over my people a shepherd like David. By the time Ezekiel's written, David's been dead for a long time. So who is this king that's going to rule over the people? Well, it's going to be Jesus Christ the Messiah. The shepherd, this one shepherd that will rule over his people. In Jerusalem. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forevermore. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion, look at that, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to you, daughter Zion. This is interesting. After the Israelites, you know, Judah, came back from captivity, 
They didn't have people from the line of David sitting on the throne. King Herod was not of the line of David. He bought his kingship. So, so we're here we have throughout the Old Testament, again, Ezekiel chapter 34, looking forward to that one like David who's going to reign on the throne. And then we have all these prophetic books that say in that day, there's going to be somebody who will rule from Jerusalem that the former dominion will be restored. Okay, I have got so much more here that I have to, I'm going to have to, to quash um, uh, the rest of it. Let me just read this one. Um, it continues Isaiah chapter 4. In that day, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride of the glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Uh, let me see here. Let me go down to a couple more. Let me go to the Jeremiah passage, and I'll finish with this. In Jeremiah, return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband, and I will choose you, one from a town, two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant uh, of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. So he's not talking about the rebuilt temple that Herod built. There is in Ezekiel another temple that has yet to be built. You have to do something with that temple. Okay? It's a literal temple that will be rebuilt. It'll be in the kingdom. Okay? And they're not going to worry about the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because Christ is the once for all sacrifice. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of the evil hearts in those days. Why will they not follow the stubbornness of the evil, heart, evil hearts? Because the new covenant will come to fruition. I'll take out of your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you so that you obey my commands. That's why the people will obey. Jeremiah was looking forward to the new covenant. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel. Well, there's an interesting statement right there because Israel has been taken into captivity, never to be found again. But God says, I'll gather them one by one, two by two. I'll bring them clan by clan. I'll bring them back together. Judah will be with Israel. He's talking about two different groups constituting one people of ethnic Israel. And together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. All right, so as we move forward... Jerusalem will be the eternal city and dwelling place of God. Right? The celestial city in Revelation is called what? It's called the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and I will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so there's this future city of Jerusalem. So how does that affect me today, real quickly? So what? Well, God keeps his promises. Okay, He promised to take them to captivity. He took them to captivity. He promised to bring them back. He brought them back. He promised to be rebuilt. He rebuilt. Not one of God's promises has failed. Right, so when God makes a promise, he keeps it. So we can count on God to keep his promises. And it's interesting, 
in the Old Testament, there are little promises about a coming Messiah that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay? There are little promises made for Israel, ethnic Israel, that are going to be fulfilled. We can't say, this is literal, it's in Christ, this is literal, no, it's in the church, it's not for the people to come. We can't do that. That's an inconsistent hermeneutic. God keeps his promises. He may seem slow to us, but he's patient, right? He wants to bring in the full number of the Gentiles, and then he's going to move things forward. He's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There is hope for ethnic Israel. There's hope. I believe, especially, okay, because God says there is hope for Israel. There is a kingdom that's going to be a special place for ethnic Israel, as it will be for us as well. I find it insightful that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is getting ready to ascend. Is it time for you to restore the kingdom? Restore, oh, a kingdom. There's a kingdom that's going to be restored. So there was something that's in view that represented the kingdom to them under David, a landmass, prosperity under David. Is it going to be restored? And Jesus doesn't say, you guys are idiots. I, you know, think about heaven. Don't think, no, he says, well, it's not time for you to know that. You're not, you're not supposed to know that right now. The Father has set that time by his own authority. And lastly, let the nations rage because Jesus wins. And this should give us hope and security. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And this is how I take Psalm 2. I have installed my king on Zion, Jerusalem, the city of David, on my holy mountain. Who is the king? The king is Jesus. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break the chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned on high laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, you're my son, today I become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Did that ever happen during Christ's first time on earth? No. No. Ask me, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. Again, Revelation chapter 19. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he'll be angry. And your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So that was a lot, okay? Um, But I hope you get the point, okay? That God has a plan for Jerusalem in the future. He has a plan for ethnic Israel in the future. But right now, Jerusalem, Israel, is just like any other nation that needs Christ, okay? And we need to pray for them, just like we pray for those around us. So let's pray, and we will sing song together before we participate in the Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you so much for this time we've had together in your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the truths that we've learned. Um, covered a lot of ground. Uh, Lord, it... I know that sometimes I get excited reading that, and um, I just pray that uh, you would have us learn from this what you would have us learn, and that we would, um, Lord, just know that um, you keep your promises, that you're good for your word, Um, Lord, that Jesus Christ wins, um, 
that the nations of the earth are as, as nothing, Lord, that Christ is going to return, set up his kingdom, Lord, and we will celebrate with him uh, as we're about to celebrate around the Lord's Supper now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would stand together.